Hello and welcome to Overdrive, where we experiment with ideas and activities to do with cars and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we look at news stories including the Dutch look to ban petrol and diesel car sales by 2025, although hybrids will still be allowed. Prompted by the New South Wales Government Forum on Future Transportation, we have a feature interview with Liz Ampt, who is a behavioural change expert. It's all very well to look at the developments in technology, but what does it mean for people and how will we get the typical person to embrace new forms of transport? Liz has some great stories. Mount Everest is hard to climb, so is the Ford Everest. We road test this large SUV. And in our panel discussion with Errol Smith and Brian Smith, we take a light-hearted look at stories, including a look back at Survival, the futuristic safety car of 1958 that never made it. Have a question or a comment, send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. You can hear longer versions of the interviews, road test and quirky news by going to the drivenmedia.com.au website or podcast the whole program from iTunes or your favourite podcast service. Now, to start the program, let's have the news. Mitsubishi Motors has admitted falsifying fuel economy data for more than 600,000 vehicles sold in Japan. The inaccurate tests involved 157,000 of its own cars and 468,000 vehicles produced for Nissan. The company said that tyre pressure figures were falsified by employees to flatter mileage rates. Almost 470,000 minicars with 660cc petrol engines that Mitsubishi made for Nissan were affected and the issue was uncovered after Nissan found inconsistencies. The announcement sent shares in Mitsubishi down more than 15% on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. The company is Japan's sixth largest car maker and sold more than 1 million vehicles last year. The Department of Transport in the UK has released a report on its emissions testing program that was started immediately after it was discovered that Volkswagen was manipulating its test results. The report found no evidence of any other company trying to manipulate the testing procedures in the same way that Volkswagen had done. However, they did find that the emissions of nitrous oxide, a major greenhouse gas and air pollutant, from the other tested vehicles were surprisingly different when tested on a test track or on-road under real driving conditions, compared to those recorded in the laboratory. For cars that were built to meet the Euro 6 requirements, the best result was still twice the approved limit, and the worst result was 12 times the approved limit. From next year, vehicles will have to meet emission limits in real driving conditions across a wide range of typical operating temperatures. The Lower House of Parliament of the Netherlands has passed a motion which would require that all new cars sold by 2025 will have to be electrified in some way, rather than fuelled solely by gasoline or diesel. The motion now has to be considered by the Senate. Its passage through the upper house may not be easy, as the Dutch Economic Affairs Minister believes that it may violate European Union law. The motion does not ban petrol and diesel altogether, as hybrid cars will still be allowed after 2025, as will existing cars sold before that date. 
In the past, transport planning used to be about trying to remove congestion and make cars travel faster. Now it's much more an integration into the social well-being of people and their community. In the U.S., the Federal Highway Administration has developed a framework for better integrating health into transportation corridor planning. The framework identifies four priority areas where health and transportation are closely related, including active transportation, air quality, safety, and equity. Overdrive believes that we need to focus on these issues in order to reduce the impact of political pork barrelling and building transport projects based purely on their financial costs. The privacy of data from your digital devices has become a major issue of concern. Uber has released its first transparency report, which shows that they had to hand over information affecting more than 12 million riders and drivers to a number of U.S. regulators. Uber received. 33 requests for data from several different authorities across a number of states, including California and Texas, between July and December 2015. A large number of the law enforcement requests Uber received were related to fraud investigations or the use of stolen credit cards, according to the report. While Uber complied with the law, it was critical of the amount of data that was requested. In 21% of the cases, they provided the information as required. In 42% of the cases, they negotiated a narrower scope, and in 38% of cases, they unsuccessfully tried to narrow the scope. Gordon Murray is the designer of Formula One race cars and the McLaren F1 road car. In collaboration with former Honda engine specialist Osamu Goto and oil company Shell. They have designed an ultra-efficient city car. It's powered by a 0.66-liter three-cylinder gasoline engine, and the body is made from recycled carbon fiber. It uses just over three liters per 100 kilometers at a steady 70 kilometers per hour. The driver gets a central seating position with two passenger seats behind on either side, similar to Murray's McLaren F1 supercar. It won't go into production, but Shell and Murray believe some of the technologies and processes used to build it could be incorporated into future production cars. Daimler is attempting to demonstrate the benefits of moving to electric trucks by running four Fuso e-cell trucks in Stuttgart, where they'll deal with everything from road construction to furniture delivery. The trucks take seven hours to recharge on a regular socket, but just one hour on a quick charger, and have a range of about a hundred kilometers. In a similar exercise in Portugal, freight companies and horticultural businesses found six-ton canter trucks were up to 64 percent less expensive than diesel trucks to run. The trucks are much quieter, which is an advantage. But Fuso have had to fit an external audio system to warn pedestrian that there's a quiet six-ton truck approaching. And that has been the news. Predicting the future is difficult. Quite often, people who are very close to a subject are not always good at getting predictions right.
Think of political pundits or a football tipping competition run by a major newspaper. Being an expert who works in the field, there's no guarantee of forecasting success. Now, the New South Wales government has just held a forum on the future of transport in that state, and they looked at a very wide range of people to have an input, not just the usual mode-specific protagonists. This included thought leaders, IT specialists, innovators, entrepreneurs, futurists, and, of course, transport leaders and academics. The keynote speaker was Steve Wozniak, the founder of Apple. This is good, but we must not let the wonderful advances in technology push us to the first approach from being the equipment side, while losing sight of the nature of human choice and the fact that transport is a response to human needs, not an end in itself. Will we cover some of the details of the technical ideas? Yes, we certainly will. That will come from that forum in future interviews. But as an introduction, I would like to chat about the understanding of what people are doing now and the real way to help people take on the best solutions for everyone's benefit. Liz Ampt is the founder of the company Concepts of Change. She's an expert in survey methods, voluntary behaviour change and project results. In one situation, her company managed to reduce car use by 18% when the control group increased their car use by 6%. So this is not just theory. Liz joins me on the line now. Liz, thanks very much for your time. Good afternoon, David. In the 1980s, you project managed New South Wales, establishing the Sydney Household Survey, which of course is still going, collecting ongoing data to this day. Was that an important thing for transport planning? It certainly was because having really accurate data is really the only way that a government can plan and try to understand what people are doing. And it's not just data about counting traffic on the side of the road or people entering a train. It's much more detailed than that, isn't it? Yes, it's totally household-based. So not only do you see the travel patterns for, say, in this case, Sydney as a whole, but you actually understand the intra-household relationships. So how people travel when one person's using the car you're able to actually see what sort of trips by what modes of transport the other people in the household are doing. Getting people to change their behaviour to say use less cars or use their car less can't I just tell them what to do? Well that's been happening for a long time but if you really want to change behaviour and achieve those results that you mentioned earlier the best way to do it is to ask them if they want to change and that way you'll get a completely different solution. So the method that we use, for example, is to say, when was the last time you were in a car and wished that you weren't? Now, everyone has an answer for that. And our next step is usually to say, and have you thought of a way of solving that? And doing it that way, people come up with their own solutions. And as you probably realize in life, it's much better when you come up with your own solution and Often those solutions are not something we would have recommended at all. It wouldn't have been in our palette of tools, so to say. You've hit a very strong point there, I think. But have you got a particular example? Well, I remember one example where there was a lady who, when I asked her when was the last time she was in a car and wished that she wasn't, she said, oh, I shouldn't really say, but I don't want to drive my child to school. You know, I never get to read the paper. I just always seem to be spending the morning taking my child to school. So I said to her, well, have you thought of a way of solving that? She said, well, yeah, it would be great if somebody else could take it every second week, but I don't even know anyone. We've only just moved here, so it's pretty tricky. 
And then I, I said to her, well, can you think of something? How could you find out who you could share rides with? And she thought for a minute and said, I know, I could ask my son in school who of his friend's parents live near us, which is what she did. And uh, that's the way she found a way to alternate weeks driving to school. Now, it's a lovely story because it embraces a whole pile of things. What was the outcome? If I'm a transport planner, I would ask the simple question, was there less car travel? Yet the outcome was more complex, more variety and deeper than that. Well, yes, there was less car travel. And indeed, if you were measuring it, you'd see that there were one week she didn't drive to school at all. But it was very exciting because she, we, we did an after study and she said, you know what happened? I was at a dinner with my husband for work and I was chatting to his friends. And when we came home, my husband said to me, darling, I didn't realise you could talk about politics the way you did. I was really proud of you. And so she said, using my car list made my husband love me more. <laughs> I don't want to get into measuring that <laughs> particularly. Isn't it a lovely thing? And and how much more does she own the solution because it has such a meaning to her? And that happens quite often, not specifically with her, but I can think of other examples where people who have changed say to us, well, once I worked out that I could make that change, I've started to think, oh, well, perhaps I can work th- other things out myself as well. And that was Liz Amped, a behavioural change expert, and you can hear more stories and more detail on her approach by listening to the long interview on our website at drivenmedia.com.au. Overdrive. For more information and past programs, go to drivenmedia.com.au. Mount Everest is hard to climb. The Ford Everest is also difficult to climb up into, but once you are over the hurdle, the rewards are pretty good, particularly with the top model. But it all comes at a price. The Everest is a large SUV, a category where the Toyotas Prado and Kluger hold first and second place in the sales race. With over 20 cars in the below $70,000 class, plus a further 13 in the luxury above $70,000 class, there is no shortage of competition. There are well-known names in the category, including Subaru Outback, Holden Captiva, Jeep Cherokee and the perennial Mitsubishi Pajero. Ford still has the territory in this category, but it is a significantly cheaper car and they will soon stop making that. When I say the Everest is below $70,000, the truth is that some of the models are. The Ambente starts out at $60,000 once you get it on the road. The top of the range, Titanium, is about $84,000 to get it on the road, depending on which state you're in. All versions have one engine and are automatic. Now, Errol has been driving the base model. I've uh, taken the responsibility of doing the the top-of-the-range model to compare. Errol, what do you think at the basis of uh, this particular car as uh, the base model? Is it good? Um, I I think it is, David. But it'd better be for about 60 grand on the road, give or take what state you're in. 
It's an interesting vehicle because while, while the Territory was a passenger car wanting to be an SUV, the Everest is a commercial four-wheel drive wanting to be a family-friendly SUV while not losing any of its off-road capability. Based on the Ranger utility. Yeah, so this they've basically taken the Ford Ranger and turned it into a, a seven-seater station wagon, for want of a better term. Mm. But this is, uh, unlike the Territory, this is a serious four-wheel drive. This thing's got full-time four-wheel drive, low range, rear diff lock, all of that stuff is standard across the range. So you're not going to get stuck anywhere in this thing. Australian engineers, I'm reading here from the heading of a Ford press release, test Ford's Everest fuel economy, driver assistance technology virtually to offer innovations not seen on the Prado. Sorry, I'm stumbling over the words there. Errol, I think you were suggesting perhaps the engineers wrote the press release. (laughs) And and I'm an engineer too, so I can say that. Uh, But clearly the Prado is in their target. Mm. But I've got to say, the sales so far this year aren't reflecting that. Uh, in fact, the Territory is still selling more. And perhaps that's in run out. You'd expect that. But the Everest is down in a 13th place, even behind the Toyota Fortuna, the Mitsubishi Pajero, the Nissan Pathfinder, the Isuzu MUX. The Hyundai Santa Fe reading up the scale, uh, going from 13th, going back up towards the top. I've mentioned some of the ones at the top already. So it's a pretty tough road. I think the price might be the stumbling block. Mm. And it's a it's an interesting category because there's a lot of things in there that you would call soft rotors, whereas this is not one of those. This is a hard rotor if you want to go the other way. But um, I think they they did actually, you know, you, you can see that the Australian design in, is in this because they got the suspension just right. It's not often you get in one of these things and it either wallows around like a boat or it's hard as a rock. Whereas I felt they got this just right and the steering felt just right. It was light and easy without being, you know, too much lock to lock. Let's start with the engine. It's a one a one engine for the three variations of it. What is it? It's a 3.2 litre straight five cylinder diesel and you'll get about 8.5 litres per 100 k's, give or take. It's rated at that. Yes. It's probably a bit hard to get that on the road. Mm. Much power to it? 143 kilowatts, which may not sound huge, except that it's got 470 newton metres of torque, which is what probably why it can tow three tonnes. Yeah, it's pretty good in that regard. Six-speed automatic gearbox. I tell you one factor when we're driving, Errol, I found it a bit noisy. What about yourself? Yeah, I, I did notice that, and that's one of the cons of coming from a, a commercial vehicle is the, the sort of lack of soundproofing. So you do get a, a fair bit of road, you know, road and engine noise um, in the cabin. But, um, you know, I, I'm going to guess they'll improve that in the next version. And that was Errol Smith and I talking about the Ford Everest large SUV. We go into more detail on the extended interview, which can be found on our website at drivenmedia.com.au. You're listening to Overdrive. And finally, we get to that more light-hearted part of the program, the quirky news. And to support me in this more obscure look at traffic and transport, I have on the line Brian Smith. Good day, Brian. Good David. And Errol Smith. Good day, Errol. Good day, David. Now, uh, Brian, you start with a story. David, it's a bit of a blast from the past, and uh, it's a 1958 
um, sort of a safety concept car. It was developed in Massachusetts. It's called Survival, so two separate words, Sir, uh, <clears throat> as in the peer, and then Vival. And it's, um, it was a man called Walter Jerome from Massachusetts. In 1958, he created what he termed a revolutionary vehicle, and it was fairly revolutionary. It, for the first time, uh, introduced a, a few safety concepts that... Uh, have become standard, including things like a seat belts, uh, roll cage, uh, uh, sliding side doors, side lights, and things like that. But it was a it was an unusual vehicle because he was really interested in um, uh, making things safer than vehicles were at the time. But very coolly, the the uh, the pe- the people carrying compartment of the car was separate from the engine, so it was like in in kind of like two pieces so that the engine and the wheels were at the two of the wheels were at the front and there was a kind of a pivoted towing arrangement where the uh the, the where you sat in a sort of a trailer behind the separate pivoting uh engine and cab and so you could drive it from sitting inside a turret something like uh, a meter above the rear passenger seat with a with a circular wraparound um turret a, a fascinating windscreen. concept windscreen yes a fascinating concept. Uh, of course, I I can't I can't understand how it would have uh, handled. It was very very expensive. Uh, it was more than double the price of uh, the most expensive Cadillac at the time. Uh, but uh, look, it looked really interesting. Uh, the whole idea about um, having the, the the car pivoting is uh, is fascinating. What did you think of it, David? Uh, look, yes, you say a trailer at the back. In, the, in fact, the trailer part was bigger and lumpier. It looks like it's been put together with panels from old washing machines. <laughs> it, it's not what you would call an elegantly looking car. It reminded me a little bit of the Homer Simpson car. Yes, yep. I, was, I was thinking of it too. It's like, it's like the Homer Simpson car designed by a safety engineer. Yeah, yeah and, and Homer Simpson, of course, had that great line, I think I've said before, in my car, it has a horn here, here, and here because you never know when you might need it. And it's got a big circular bumper, sort of like a Dodgem car, hasn't it? When you yeah. feel, well, I filled with like air. It's a Dodgem. Filled with air, mm. which was you know, precedes the latest Citroen Cactus, which has that sort of bubble wrap on the side door. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yes, I saw that, this. That, that principle of you know, trying to have some sort of cushioning effect rather than the chrome bumper bar, which was popular at the time. And even the headlights turned with the, uh, with the car. Yeah, yeah. well, the, the front is a little bit like an articulated tractor, and the whole thing sort of pivots in the middle to steer. Yeah, it's very strange. Imagine driving yeah. it. It would be a very unusual feel, wouldn't it? I, I can imagine it would get out of shape pretty quickly. And I would imagine it would be hard to get it back into shape. Yes. Mm. I don't Jack think it was, it was ever in shape in the first place. <laughs> um, it, this is not an attractive vehicle, and, and I didn't think it was possible, but it's even uglier from the back. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it has that sort of boot uh, bonnet line on the front, and then there's the pivot point. Then it has this big bit on the back with a turret in it where the driver sits up in the turret, thus having great vision. Well, hey, he preceded the notion of the SUV. Mm. Yes, it's driving high. Yeah, <laughs> sitting up sitting high. Up high. Yeah, exactly. That's, Seeing over yeah. the traffic. Now it says the two-section body minimizes impact on collisions. That to me sounds like it's more from the marketing yeah. department than <laughs> from the engineers. But 
I'm not sure of the veracity of the research behind that. Yeah, yeah it does. Yeah, we shouldn't be too cynical. I mean, some projections back there were quite good. They had the notion of autonomous cars back then, albeit as ones that almost went on rails, you know, went along a very defined route. Mm. But they had the notion of people inside mm. it reading the newspaper or doing other activities. Mm. I mean, it does have features that there is a modern equivalent of. So the way that the, the front follows the road and the lights basically sort of peek around the corner. I mean, you've had that mechanically um, in the past few decades and now electronically in modern cars. Mm. And, um, and I, I think the airfield rubber bumper is um, actually a good idea. It would save a lot of, you know, parking scrapes and probably, probably be a better option if you were a pedestrian and if you wanted to get hit by something. I'd prefer something with a rubber bumper. <laughs> Uh, it's a very cool element about the windscreen for the driver, which is which is circular in this sort of turret, uh, that uh, in order to work as uh, to wipe it from the rain, it, it circulates around, so it sort of spins, and the, there are fixed wipers that uh, that keep it clean. An amazing concept. <laughs> well, well, I was in Barcelona the other uh, well a little while ago, and uh, they had a toilet seat like that. That when you got up and that it rotated around and thus cleaned the toilet to the seat. Last person's seated position. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the next, the second person after you gets to sit on your warm seat. <laughs> well, it's, well, uh, yes. it, well, believe it or not, this thing is still around. I found uh, some photos of it sitting in a sort of collector's lot, yeah, it's a bit, sort of it's in a, rust, a bit rusting sad, heat. Isn't it? Yeah. Yes, it, it is. It is loosely based on a uh, 1948 Hudson, but um, and you can see bits of that in there next to the other a real Hudson. But uh, oh yeah, probably more the back half of it. Yes, the, the back door and things, and had rear side lights, which I thought was rather nice. All right, well, we, we've got to be adventurous. We should. Uh, it was as ugly as sin, but do not think that we should dismiss it. Out of hand. Fair enough. It, never practical, but there we go. And now a story. The world's greatest highway system raised the standard. I'm reading from the press report, but which is basically US speak for we are the greatest. It is a road in Seattle. It goes across the water, and it now lays a claim to being the world's longest floating bridge, 2.4 kilometres. Gentlemen, would you feel comfortable on it? Are you asking me, am I in a boat or a car? <laughs> they get heavy seas in the Puget Sound? They say it will sustain winds up to about 143 kilometres an hour. I wouldn't have thought that was the maximum design wind speed you should be catering for. I would have put it higher. Well, if it's mm. a floating bridge, I'm interested in waves, not so much about wind. Or does it bounce up and down? Yeah, and, and uh, or does, could heavy trucks on it act like sails and you could actually, you know, um, move sideways as well as forward? And we continue that discussion. If you want to hear more, go to our website at drivenmedia.com.au where we touch on the subjects of blocking a road to do burnouts and protecting your beer rather than your children in your car. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Errol Smith, Brian Smith, Liz Ampt and Paul Just for their great help during the program. 
Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments of the features, road test and quirky news on our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program from iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.